Today we continue on that journey with Joseph. See, Mary had to pay attention there to when I was going to actually start the sermon. And without any signal from me, she had to, to know. And again, that's the kind of people we have here. But let's hear it from Mary Williams. Today we continue our journey with Joseph. And we're beginning to see that the life of Joseph sort of runs parallel with ours. Like Joseph in part one, we've been in the pit of adversity too. And in part two, Joseph demonstrated what it means to serve with integrity. Those sound like some of the challenges that you and I face. It, it sounds like my story and yours as well. We hear it every week in the stories that we see on the videos. It sounds like life, everyday life. And it's in the midst of everyday life where we often encounter temptation. Today is part three. And we find Joseph having dealt with adversity, now serving in Potiphar's house, and about to face a great test. It's Joseph in temptation. You remember where we left our guy, Joseph. He's a slave in the house of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. And over time, he's found favor in the house. And now he's overseer of all that Potiphar has. But life is about to take an unexpected turn. A cynic might say, no good deed goes unpunished. We pick up the story in chapter 39 of the book of Genesis. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. It says, It came to pass after these things that his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes upon Joseph. And she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master knows not what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has into my hand. There's none greater in this house than I. Neither has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It came to pass, it says in verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his work. He went into the house to do his business. And there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he got him out. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. The realm of temptation. Lord, I pray that you would help us to step back from where we are in life. To look into the future to be prepared for the times of temptation that perhaps are coming our way or will come our way. 
Lord, I pray You'd give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name. Where is it we find temptation? We find it in our days of ease and leisure. It's in our aspirations. It's in our prosperity. It's at home. It's at work. It's in the hustle and bustle of midday and in the quiet and dark of night. Temptations are like germs. They're always there. They're everywhere. There is no sterile environment. The question is, what condition is your immune system in? When we're in the midst of a spiritual battle, we tend to have our armor on. We tend to have our shield in hand. The temptation may be present, but we are in a spiritually protected place. It's in peacetime when we tend to be most susceptible to the ambush of the enemy. Tom Landry, legendary coach of the Dallas Cowboys, said he coached, now hear me, he said he coached more after a win and less after a loss. It was coming off success when the players tended toward coasting. It was after success they were most vulnerable. It was after a victory they were most likely to let their guard down. And Joseph was successful. He was an overseer in the house of Potiphar. And now he finds himself in temptation. Temptation is a challenge because it often plays on our appetites. And there is no sin in our appetites and desires. Hunger is no sin. Neither is there sin in our sexual desires. The danger is in gratifying our appetites either to excess or from wrong and improper sources. For example, it's no sin to desire wealth. It is a sin if you steal it from somebody else. But temptation is out there. And our appetites are not an excuse for sinning. Joseph reminds us this morning that a man of God, a woman of God, can resist temptation. We do not have to sin. Every sin, church, is a choice we make. We can resist sin. We can remain pure and Joseph reminds us how. How did Joseph avoid sin? And there's notes in your program that can help you follow along, some blanks for you to fill in to keep you engaged. How did Joseph avoid sin? How did Joseph thrive in temptation? Here are five keys to Joseph's success in temptation. Number one, he had prepared for this. Verse 8 says, But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master knows not what's in the house, and he's committed all that he has into my hand. It just seems as though Joseph's priorities were already in order. It does not seem as though this caught Joseph off guard. Ten years ago or so, I was the youth pastor here at Central Assembly, and I would tell the students that they needed 
to have a plan for purity already in place. And it's true for each one of us. These are decisions you make and plans that you formulate in your time with God. You don't make these, these plans, you don't make these decisions when you're in the back seat of a car out at the point. It's too late then. Joseph's moral fabric was already in place. The attempted seduction at the hand of Potiphar's wife did not produce Joseph's character. It revealed it. Joseph had prepared for this moment. It starts with understanding who you are. And I know this has been a re recurring theme lately, but I believe God has laid it on my heart for a reason. It starts with understanding who you are. I often talk of humility, but I think I look at humility different than most do. Humility is seeing yourself as you really are. Humility is seeing yourself accurately as God sees you. I believe that most of us don't overestimate ourselves. We underestimate ourselves. I believe if we all operated in true humility, for the clear majority, it wouldn't bring them down. It would raise them False humility is one more tool of the enemy designed to keep us from reaching our potential. L let me say that again. False humility is one more tool of the enemy designed to keep us from reaching our potential. If we must be saved, the devil's next approach is to keep us from reaching others. If he can get you to see yourself as less than you are, then he has made giant strides toward accomplishing his goal. Does that make sense? True humility is not self-denigrating. Humility is not a proclamation that we can't do anything. It's a declaration that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You ought to say amen to that. Humility is seeing yourself as a child of God. Humility is a grasp of the reality that I'm a soldier in the Lord's army. Humility says I'm a conqueror. Humility tells me I'm a victor. Hum true humility says that I'm a mighty man of valor. And if that's how I see myself, if that's how I see myself, I am much more likely to succeed in temptation. If I see myself as a spiritual man, I am more likely to have the strength to resist the temptation. But if I see myself as a carnal man, a failure in the realm of kingdom work, inconsequential to God, unimportant in the church, and I'm disappointed already with the way I conduct myself, I am much more susceptible to the wiles of the evil one. Rest assured that Joseph knew exactly who he was. And he had prepared for this time of testing. A prudent man, the Bible says, a wise man, foresees the evil and hides himself. But the simple...
pass on and are punished. This is a proverb so important, it's found twice identical wording in the scriptures. In the realm of counseling, you're often dealing with people after their crisis. You're picking up the pieces and attempting to restore hope. It involves making amends, attempting to restore relationships. It can be a long, arduous, painful process that involves surrender and self-examination, painful self-inventory and acknowledgement of our shortcomings. In these counseling sessions, we often ask about the red lights that were missed on the way to disaster. We look at the warning signs that you ignored. We try to identify the, the forks in the road and the opportunities missed to take a different path. Restoration, after all, is a lot to go through. How much better, how, how much better it would be to foresee the evil and to hide from it. It's like the anti-drunk driving campaign that paint, points out the cost will eventually exceed $10,000. It's trying to get you to see the end result without having to experience it. But many are not that smart. Joseph was. Joseph had already formulated and shaped his values. This was no fly-by-night deal. His heart was already fixed. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow all of the issues of life. Joseph was prepared. Joseph had already thought it through. And because of that, he was able to thrive in temptation. Number two, how was Joseph able to thrive in temptation? Number two, he was loyal to those around him. The beginning of verse 9 says, There's none greater in the house than I. Neither has he kept back anything from me except you, his wife. Joseph recognized that his sin would affect others. Sin has brought down many great and powerful men. Kings and pastors and CEOs and politicians and celebrities. There's another tragic tale every day, it seems. Another great leader who thought they would never get caught and their world comes crashing down. But it isn't just the people involved whose lives are forever changed. There's a fallout beyond the headlines that, doesn't, that we don't always get to see. Families are devastated. Marriages ruined. Kingdoms divided. Churches compromised. Businesses damaged. It's called collateral damage. Tragically, most never think that through ahead of time. But Joseph did. Joseph knew that his sin would affect others. Maybe we should take time to think about who our sin affects. Joseph had loyalty to Potiphar. I don't know that they were friends. My impression from Scripture is that it was more of a boss-employee relationship. 
But that didn't matter. Joseph saw Potiphar as a person. He could have easily slipped into the role of judge and saw Potiphar as a representative of all the evil that had befallen him to this point. Potiphar was a slaveholder. Stick it to the man. Potiphar was rich and oppressive. Stick it to the man. Potiphar didn't care about anyone but himself. He had it all, and he had it at the expense of others. Stick it to the man. This is how a large segment, by the way, of our society thinks. To them, there are the haves and the have-nots. And to this segment of society, the haves can do nothing right, and the have-nots can do nothing wrong. Well, that was not the approach of the young man Joseph. Joseph's approach was more reflected in Romans 12, beginning in verse 19, where it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. In other words, put anger, put wrath in its rightful place. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay Therefore, verse 20, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. Now we're talking about your enemy now. If your enemy thirsts, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you heap coals of fire upon his head. Verse 21, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. It's easy to get caught up in the ways of the world. It's all too common to be overcome with evil. It's way too easy to point out the sin of others, especially our enemy, and to conveniently look past our own transgressions. Joseph chose not to judge Potiphar. He chose instead to bless him. He would not let, hear me now church, Joseph would not let the sin of Potiphar be an excuse for his own sin. Joseph was loyal to those around him. And he knew his sin would impact them profoundly. So he chose to operate with honor. When I'm arrested for drugs, it brings shame on my family. When I'm fired from my job, it affects more than just me. When I lose my temper on the field or on the golf course or on the freeway, I bring disgrace upon more than just me. Infidelity, unethical behavior, unbridled anger, unforgiveness, gossip, addiction. Are you fool enough to think no one noticed? Joseph understood well his sin would impact others. And that helped him in temptation. He also knew, number three, that it would be a sin against God. The second part of verse 9 says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Ultimately, every sin is a sin against God. Potiphar had entrusted all that he had into Joseph's care. He withheld only one thing, his wife. Years ago, when my kids were little, every Saturday I would take them to the bakery. That was our little tradition. We'd walk from over on East 6th Street 
down to the, the business section of East End on 5th Street. We'd go to the East End Bakery and we'd have a, have a roll together. And I remember one morning we're walking, we're halfway there, and one of my little girls says, Dad, what should I get? I don't know what I should get. Should I get a Bismarck or a fried cinnamon roll? And in Solomon-esque wisdom, I said, no matter which one you get, you're going to wish you had the other one. <laughs> it, it seems as though our human nature wants what we can't have. We, we crave the forbidden fruit. And I guess it goes all the way back to the, the Garden of Eden, the creation account. Genesis chapter 2, it says, And the Lord took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. Verse 16 of Genesis 2, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Let's not take that verse for granted. Of every tree, any tree, all the trees, of every tree of the garden you can freely eat. Pick one. Pick them all. You can eat from all of these trees. The trees over there. The trees over there. The trees here. The trees here. The trees here. All the trees. Any of the trees. All the trees. Pick one. Eat them all. I don't care. But of one tree. Of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Thou shalt not eat of it. We haven't learned, church, to trust God enough to be satisfied with what He's entrusted to us. We somehow want more. We want what He says we can't have. We can't seem to trust the fact that He knows what's best for us. We're like Abram rushing ahead of God and impregnating Hagar. We're like Moses killing the Egyptian. We're like Peter denying the Lord. We're like David with Bathsheba. The whole kingdom is David's. Multiple wives, concubines, servants of every tree of the garden you can freely eat. But David wants Uriah's life. Every sin is ultimately rooted in the fact that we could not trust God enough to obey Him. Ultimately, church, ultimately, Every sin is a sin against God. And so here we discover the true root of repentance. David finally got to a place where he could understand his sin was against God. And the power of that cold realization is expressed beautifully in Psalm 51, where he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness." According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, David says, from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, verse 4 says, against you and against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now let's stop and think about this for a second. King David saw Bathsheba from his rooftop. He brought her to himself and he committed adultery. He sinned against her. He, he sinned against her family. 
He sinned against her husband. And he sinned against those that who he brought into the plan that would ultimately have her husband killed to get him out of the way. And he sinned against the entire kingdom that he ruled over. But despite all those tangible realities, David recognized that ultimately his sin was against God. And that's where true repentance starts. It's interesting to me, and I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but it's interesting to me that no record exists of the names of the Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. God knows full well who they are, I'm sure. But if we knew their identities, we would have a hall of shame somewhere, and we could easily look down upon them with disdain. When in a very real sense, we all nailed Jesus to the cross. It's far too broad and impersonal to say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. The reality is, he died for my sins. He's not just Savior of the world. He's my Savior. Those who literally pounded the nails into his hands and his feet are not inconsequential. But it's no more inconsequential than the culpability I bear. Our sins affect many people. The trickle-down effect is probably beyond what we could ever realize. But ultimately, our sin is against God. Potiphar's wife was there for the taking. The other family and the servants were out of the house. Joseph not only walked into temptation, he walked into opportunity. But Joseph loved God so much that he couldn't bring himself to do it. Joseph, you see, was a man of character. And character is what you're like when no one's looking. What would you do if you knew you wouldn't get caught? That's a character question. Just know this. Even if you don't get caught, even if nobody ever finds out, even if no one else is hurt, it's still a sin against God. And the thought of sinning against God kept Joseph strong in temptation. Number four of Joseph's five keys to success in temptation is he didn't dabble in the temptation. Verse 10 says it came to pass as, as she spoke to Joseph day by day or day after day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. He hearkened not unto her, the Bible says. Perhaps we can contrast this with the strong man Samson and the secret of his strength. Back to the, or I guess ahead, if we're in Genesis, ahead to the book of Judges, chapter 16, 4 through 6, it says it came to pass afterward that he, Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to Delilah. And said unto her, Entice him, tempt him, and see wherein his great strength lies, and by what means we may prevail against him, so that we can bind him and afflict him. And we will give you, Delilah, 
every one of us, 1,100 pieces of silver. Verse 6 of Judges 16 says, And Delilah said to Samson, said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein does your great strength lie? What's the secret of your sin? And how might we, someone, bind you to afflict you? Now, he should have fled like the young man Joseph. He should have seen the red light flashing and hit the ground running. He should have heeded the warning alarms blaring in his conscience. But you see, Samson was driven by the sensual. Joseph, on the other hand, is motivated by principles. Samson, hear me, Samson had no intention of revealing the secret. But rather than flee the evil, he tells a series of flirtatious lies. And eventually, Delilah extracts from him the information that would lead to his demise. Samson dabbled with the temptation like a boy poking a snake with a stick until that fateful moment when in the blink of an eye, it strikes. Many men and women have dabbled with sin only to have it come back to bite them. From drugs to pornography to every form of sexual sin to gambling, the hook always goes in easier than it comes out. Satan gives you the hard sell up front. But he always lets you down in the end. It'll be great. No one will ever know. What could it hurt? God wants you to be happy. When you hear these lies, do what Joseph did. Number five, he chose to flee. Verse 12 says, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. You see, Joseph knew that playing with fire will get you burned. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You, you watch the news. I know you do. Now we have the Me Too movement where countless women in the workplace and other organizations are coming forward with their stories of exploitation, from Harvey Weinstein to Bill Cosby. But on the front end of all of that was the story of Vice President Mike Pence, who casually mentioned he would never dine with another woman without his wife present. <laughs> and, and the media... And the celebrities mocked him like he was some wacko from Mars. Turns out Mike Pence was on to something. There's an, old there's an old expression. It's similar to an old expression. <laughs> but it's an old expression. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You understand that concept, church? You understand that, that concept? A lot of people who never intended to have an affair put themselves in a vulnerable place and failed 
to flee the temptation. And they wound up somewhere they never intended to be. Men and women who spend time together and allow it to go beyond the professional level run the risk of forging an emotional connection. And the emotional connection is where the affair begins. There's only one way to thrive in temptation, and that's to make the choice to flee. Let me close this this morning with five quick reasons why we flee temptation. Number one, sin has tentacles we may not see. Sin has tentacles we may not see. And once it gets a hold of you, you're in its grasp. Number two, again, these are five reasons why we flee. Sin has tentacles that we may not see up front. Number two, we want to avoid even the appearance of evil. Now hear me, church. We have no business lingering in the arena of sin and temptation. We flee. Number three, we cannot foresee our weak moments. You may be strong enough today, but you don't know that tomorrow. Number four, we do not want to give the devil place in our lives. We do not want to give the devil place in our lives. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Number five, why, why do we flee? Because it's just not worth it. Sin is just not worth it. The risk-reward ratio of sin is horrible. Sin could cost you everything. I know a man who was a pastor for many years. He had a problem with pornography. After several failures, they pulled his credentials. Eventually, his wife left him, and they divorced. He lost everything. I wonder what he would give today to go back and flee the temptation. How did Joseph thrive in temptation? Number one, he was prepared for it. He, he foresaw the evil and he hid from it. Number two, he was loyal to those around him. He was aware that his sin would produce a collateral damage. Number three, he realized that every sin ultimately is a sin against God. Number four, he just refused to dabble in it. He realized it would only be a matter of time before he got burned. Number five, he chose to flee. He just did not want to be in the grip of sin. And the absolute best alternative was to flee. It's your best alternative too. And it all starts with your relationship with God. If your relationship with God is lacking, then your immune system is already compromised. Temptation, as we said in the beginning, is ever-present. Sin is lurking outside the door, lying in wait, ready to ambush you. 
But with God's help, we can thrive even in temptation. Would you bow your head with me this morning? And before I pray, again, while every head is bowed, and that's just to give your neighbor privacy, it's kind of to close, close your world in a little bit so you can hear my final words this morning. It's all about your immune system. can't avoid germs. You're always going to encounter germs. And you're always going to encounter temptation. Even if we built a compound up on the mountain somewhere, we'd still encounter temptation. And so the answer really is to make sure your, your immune system is strong. Make sure your relationship with God is right, current. It's not an experience you had years ago. It speaks of today. It speaks of now. And I want to make sure you're right with him because I think that's where all of this starts. Maybe you've never given your life to him. Maybe you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus. If that's you, with every head bowed and every eye closed, you're saying, Tom, I've, I've never committed my life to Jesus and I want to do that. Would you slip up your hand by slipping up your hand, you're not joining the church. You're just saying, Tom, I want to give my heart to Jesus this morning. I want my sins to be forgiven based on what he did on Calvary's cross. I want to put my faith in him. If that's you this morning, would you slip up your hand? Church, I'm going to ask you to pray. If you're a believer, would you, would you pray for me? Would you pray for this congregation that they would have ears to hear? God bless you. I see that hand in the front. God bless you for responding. Someone else this morning, you want to give your heart to Jesus. With every eye closed and every head bowed, maybe you need to recommit yourself. It just feels like it's not current. You committed your life to him many years ago, some time ago, but it just feels like it's not up to date. If that's you, and you want to renew that relationship today, would you slip up your hand just so I can include you in our closing prayer? If that's you this morning, slip up your hand. God bless you. I see these hands in the middle, a number of hands in the middle section. My right section, yes, yes, number of hands. Someone else this morning over here on the left. Come on, there's a hand on the left. Someone else this morning. God bless you. You need to make sure your relationship with him is alive and vibrant and current. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Yes. One more today. One more thought. Maybe you're in a time of temptation. If that's you today, slip up your hand. By slipping up your hand, I'll just include you in my closing prayer. God bless you. I see that hand. I see that hand to my right. Way to my right. Yes, yes. Yes, to the left. Yes. Lord, we look to you this morning. Lord, we confess our sin. We've fallen short. Lord, sometimes it feels like not only is temptation inevitable, but giving into it is inevitable. Lord, I pray that we would see that for the lie that it is. And that we would learn from the example of Joseph 
we would already have thought it through. What will we do the next time we're faced with temptation? What can we do to keep from putting ourselves in a place of temptation? What can we do to minimize those vulnerable moments when our past history indicates this is when we fail? Who can we bring into the circle? Who can I be accountable to? Who can I talk to about my failures and my temptation? Lord, for the, the ones that are renewing their relationship with you, Lord, I pray that it would just be new again. I pray that they would be baptized anew and afresh in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. You would flow through them like a mighty river. Lord, that you give us wisdom and temptation. A wise man, a prudent man, foresees the evil and hides from it, but the fool, the simple, pass on and are punished. Lord, I don't want to be a fool. Lord, we look to you this morning. I pray that this is a message that would find its way into our heart. It would lodge there. We would prepare for the hour of temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.